Talking Politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on Arut Sheva, Israel National News slash Radio. And we are always proud to be sponsored by the S4 Group, S4GRP.com, S4, a full-service communications, government relations, a lobbying firm with a very excellent, informative state-by-state and federal newsletter both on politics and policy, you can subscribe at s4grp.com. Scroll down, you'll find that. And there is presidential fireworks going on on a daily basis. Donald Trump, the Bushes, uh, the debate Saturday night was positively spectacular, the Democratic debate. Uh, And as the Democrats head into Nevada, and then after that, South Carolina, also quite spectacular. But the political worlds, or the world of Washington, was struck by an earthquake in the form of the passing of a legal giant, Anthony Scalia, a conservative stalwart of the Supreme Court, leaves a tremendous void and a tremendous vacancy, both in the court, but also a political war, if you want, a nuclear war, like you wouldn't believe, uh, going forward for the president, for President Obama, whether he will appoint Another justice in his final year. The Republicans have already vowed not to confirm a justice of the Supreme Court. The court evenly divided at 4-4, at least conventional wisdom, at, uh, at that. So I want to welcome to the discussion a uh, really wonderful conservative, I'll call him a conservative columnist and author, uh, Seth Lipsky, founding editor of the New York Sun, as well as having been on a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal and helped found various publications within the Wall Street Journal family. Now also a professor at Columbia Journalism School. Seth Lipsky, welcome to Spin Class. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much. It's nice to be with you. So talk for a second. You've written a little bit about the impact that Justice Scalia has had on the American scene as well as specifically, and we can, you know, we can get into this, uh, specifically with regard to the Jewish community and why the Jewish community will miss Justice Scalia in particular. And I guess I mean our listenership is primarily the Orthodox Jewish community, although not exclusively. Well, I think that's just a wonderful question, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, be included in your conversation I do think uh, the death of Justice Scalia will have an enormous impact on uh, the um, the Torah community. You know, I first saw him in action in a live situation when he, uh, in 2008, was the keynote speaker of the annual dinner of the Agudath Israel of America. And as you may know, that that banquet, which is enormous, takes place in the Hilton Hotel in New York. And there's a dais that must seat in four tiers, maybe one or two hundred of the most distinguished rabbis in in the Torah world. And there, in the middle of these <laughs> ranks of, of sages wearing uh, black uh, suits and uh, long beards and and broad-brimmed hats was uh, Justice Scalia uh, 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 between the Nobel Minsker Reddy uh, and the Honorable Raymond J. Kelly of the uh, New York Police Department. It was just a glorious sight. And, uh, you know, Scalia got up and, and talked about 
a key point that he has made, had made one of his themes on the court, which is that the Constitution was not, as originally intended, designed to uh, hamper religion or, or exclude it from the public square. On the contrary, uh, he saw religion as having a special admiration under the Constitution. And uh, this was reflected time and again in his uh, jurisprudence. And I think the death of Justice Scalia uh, is going to be felt especially keenly in the religious communities of America, uh, particularly at a time when uh, we're in the midst of what could be called a, almost a religious war in this country over the boundaries of religious freedom. So I recall that dinner, uh, Seth, I, that Justice Scalia spoke at, and if I recall, it, I think this was at that dinner, that he'd actually grown a pretty significant beard at the time and was wearing a, a, a yarmulke. He actually looked like he fit right in, and he talked about the fact that he had nine children, which I think he, he remarked that he was that was about average for the crowd there. Uh, right. Uh, you know, I, I can't... I probably was seated a little further away from from where the justice was to, to see the beard business, but I, I certainly was wearing a kippah, and, uh, um, and he often talked about his children and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, the, large, the large family that was typical of, uh, you know, religious Jewish families in respect to the fourth and multiplied business. I mean, uh, it's important. So not just respect and mutual respect that Justice Scalia had for the uh, religious community, he also had a, a, a par apparently was written about as the one who encouraged or at least promoted or included many Orthodox court clerks. Uh, Supreme Court clerks. It was been very difficult for years to get a clerkship in the Supreme Court. If you're Orthodox, I guess because you have to take a day off, or if you you know outwardly wear a yarmulke. And Scalia, it, at least anecdotally, I understand, hired a number of Orthodox court clerks, Orthodox Jewish court clerks. Yeah, yeah I, I don't have a way to confirm that, but I don't doubt it for a second. And I think that might have come up when uh, Justice Scalia appeared at a, on stage at Yeshiva University uh, uptown in Manhattan, uh, seated between uh, uh, Rabbi Meyer Soloveitchik and uh, the great constitutional lawyer Nathan Lewin. Uh, and I think maybe Lewin talked about that, or maybe uh, Soloveitchik, but I think that came up there. So, Seth, you've written extensively about the divide within the Jewish community, uh, the way the Orthodox perceive policy and the way the non-Orthodox or the establishment Jewish community perceives public policy. Can you perhaps, perhaps that can be encapsulated into the way Justice Scalia would be perceived. Many on the, on the, on the left really vilified him as a justice. Uh, was that the perception in the establishment Jewish community? So I think uh, certainly the liberal wing of the Jewish community, which politically is most of it in America, uh, was not uh, a big fan of Justice Scalia, uh, but the Orthodox community, I'm going to guess, was. And 
you know, Norman Pedoritz wrote a whole book about the tragedy uh, through which uh, what he called, you know, the religion of liberalism had supplanted uh, Torah values to such a degree that that uh, liberal Jewry, you know, fails to rise to the defense of, uh, of the Orthodox community when its free exercise of religion uh, is crowded out. I mean, we saw this in New York in this most dramatic situation where the Bloomberg administration uh, tried to regulate circumcision to uh, put limits on oral suction. And, um, you know, I think the health department um, would have outlawed it altogether if it had had its uh, way. Uh, but it did go to uh, the court, and the courts, uh, the appeals courts, um, uh, made it clear that they weren't going to allow it unless the city could prove an overriding necessity for it, which the city, of course, could not, and eventually folded its hand and reached an amicable settlement with the Ekudas Israel of America. And, you know, I think one of the reasons the religious faction was emboldened to take that case to the court in the first place is because of uh, people like uh, Justice Scalia and a few others uh, had been seated on the Supreme Court. In fact, it didn't get to the Supreme Court because the lower courts made the correct decision. What would you say are Justice Scalia's most important decisions or even dissents with respect to with respect to his legacy on the Jewish community or these church state issues? I know he was a foe of that separation of church and state of the wall between religion and state. So, you know, there's a very famous case called Lemon v. Kurtzman, which had to do with uh, the degree to which the state of Pennsylvania could get involved in funding certain non-religious aspects of schools in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Lemon, a plaintiff, was a uh, self-described atheist, uh, and the court um, uh, the court um, came down against the religious camp, and uh, 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 it didn't say the wall of separation had to be absolute, but it set up a, a very complex three-part test known as the Lemon Test uh, that, uh, you know, uh, would have to be met before the state could, you know, help out the religious communities. And uh, it drove Scalia crazy. Uh, he dissented in that, and he... Uh, he later likened the lemon test to a, you know, a ghoul that climbed out of the grave every now and again to scare school children. Uh, he was very dramatic in the way he wrote. Um, that was one of his most famous descents of, uh, uh, of interest to, uh, to the religious communities. But, you know, now with Obamacare trying to force people to uh, uh, underwrite... Uh, insurance for birth control and with same-sex marriage uh, now a uh, right vouchsafed by the Supreme Court uh, religious communities are uh, concerned that they may be pressured to 
uh, get involved in these uh, practices that are uh, illegal under their religious laws. Um, uh, and they all look to uh, Justice Scalia uh, uh, and the legal school of thought that he was a leader of uh, to protect them. Some of these cases are going to come to a head very quickly, and now there is uh, a greater danger that uh, the religious camp will be more isolated. And some of this is uh, uh, potentially extremely serious to fundamentalist religious communities like uh, Orthodox uh, Jewry and, and Christians and even Muslims. Uh, and without Scalia in the ban, uh, a lot of this is in doubt now. And we're talking to Seth Lipsky of Haaretz, uh, as well as formerly of the New York Sun and the Wall Street Journal, frequent columnist, professor at Columbia Journalism School here on Spin Class. I want to switch gears for a moment, Seth. You penned an op-ed in the New York Post last week with regard to Bernie Sanders, and you know, I guess we could talk politics for two seconds. You said, what's Bernie Sanders hiding about his radical history? And you went on to talk about you know, his time on the Israeli kibbutz and trying to divine exactly how he feels about Israel. Where do you come out on this? What should the audience know about Bernie Sanders and his feelings with regard to the state of Israel? Yeah, what that column was about was the fact that the discovery by Haaretz, after months in which its reporters were trying to find out which... Uh, Kibbutz uh, Sanders had spent time on in the early 1960s, the discovery that it was a kibbutz that uh, uh, up through the 1950s, uh, and maybe a little bit after, uh, had venerated Joseph Stalin and used to fly the red flag on May Day and uh, was really a seriously left-wing kibbutz. Now, my position is not that there should be any religious test on on Bernie Sanders. I mean, uh, it's uh, legal in America to be a socialist or a communist, for that matter. Uh, and I wasn't suggesting that Sanders was a communist. I was just suggesting that, uh, you know, voters, uh, he, he ought to uh, talk to the voters about what he was doing back then. I mean, when he was interviewed about that in 1990 in Haaretz, which is the interview that uh, Haaretz reporters finally turned up to uh, discover his kibbutz, uh, he, he said that he was uh, very upset with the United States and Israel. And he turned out to be upset with Israel for, uh, as he used the word, uh, serving as a front for America in Central America, where freedom was very much uh, hanging in balance in the uh, late 1980s and early 1990s. And I said that, uh, that voters ought to get an explanation of what he was talking about, uh, because if Israel was fronting for America, what's the matter with that? The job of the president himself is to front for America. Uh, right. That was my point. Um, so, As uh, if he, he subscribes to the colonialism uh, narrative that Israel is that colonialist Western outpost within the sea of uh, natives out there in the Middle East. Yeah, the, uh, that's a very good point. You know, the, the bringing in that word colonialism. I mean, the idea that Israel is a colonial, that Zionism is a colonial movement, when in fact it's a national liberation movement uh, to uh, revolt against a colonial uh, 
regime in that mandatory mandatory Palestine. Um, it just turns history on its head, and there can be no excuse for it. And if that's how Bernie Sanders thinks about Israel, people want to know it. That's exactly my point. I, you know, I'm not saying it's illegal. I'm just saying we ought to know it. We're about to decide whether to vote for him for president. Certainly. Well, Seth Lipsky from Haaretz, The Forward, Wall Street Journal, as well as The New York Sun. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Look forward to hearing more of your very informative journalism as we uh, as we continue on in the uh, campaign season. And really appreciate you coming on the show this week. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be with and this is Spin Class, and I want to welcome to the show for the very first time Professor Sam Wilzig of Bar Ilan University. He teaches and researches in the field of Israeli politics, Israel and general communications, new media, and technology and society, as well as Jewish studies. He just completed a whirlwind speaking tour of the United States. He's back in Israel. And as a communications specialist uh, and a political specialist, I'm sure he's uniquely able to provide our audience, which uh, certainly is of the Jewish and pro-Israel variety, looking to have a Israeli view, potentially, of the presidential race. Professor Wilzig, welcome to Spin Class. Pleased to be here. So let's start from the top. Uh, we have never had, at least from my estimation, a presidential race, uh, presidential nominating uh, calendar, polling, wh whatever it is, on both the Democratic and the Republican side, or the Republican side seems to be more unique. We've never really had a race like this, where a lot of the conventions of campaigning, a lot of the conventions of communications have kind of been thrown out the window. And I was wondering you know, how people are looking at our, you know, we here, we're in a little bit of a echo chamber here in the U.S., got constant barrage from the news media about how they perceive the race. But how do people, with from a step back, looking at it from across the ocean, see what's going on in our presidential primary contests? Well, um, I would. the first thing is bemusement and perhaps also a little trepidation. Um, Israelis uh, are, are used to their own campaigns being a little off the wall, uh, but they're not really used to, to their big ally and their big friend Uncle Sam having campaigns like this. Uh, so they're relatively bemused, uh, at least those that are following the campaign. And what I mean by that is that many Israelis are really not focusing right now uh, that much on the campaign, other than, as you would call it, the circus sideshow aspects, uh, because it's still a long way off. In America, of course, the, 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 United, the, the citizens are going to the polls and voting, but in Israel, there doesn't seem to be too much of uh, an interest <clears throat> in the campaign until the real, the two main uh, nominees uh, finally come into focus. Um, you do find in the TV, on TV, Israeli TV news, and here and there as well in the newspapers, certain interesting aspects. For example, Haaretz, for, uh, Haaretz uh, newspaper, uh, for several weeks ran uh, a, a sort of a campaign asking the question, uh, Bernie Sanders, which kibbutz was he actually on in the 1960s? And they finally found in their own archives <clears throat> some kind of indication about which kibbutz it was. Uh, so it's that kind of uh, sort of um, peripheral uh, issues that, that uh, perhaps uh, interest or certainly interest the media and perhaps show it on the media. But the Israeli citizen, uh, uh, the average Israeli citizen isn't really focused. And another major reason is there's so much going on in Israel 
internally, domestically, I'm not even talking about the Middle East, which is crashing all around us, uh, first time ever prime minister going to jail, other kinds of corruption uh, scandals and, and investigations going on. Uh, so that seems to take up the brunt of uh, what the Israeli public right now is focused on. <clears throat> so when you look at the perception, I, well, I was in Israel a couple weeks ago, and one thing I could tell you is that everybody wanted to know how I feel about Trump. Trump, 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 Trump. It was almost as if there was nobody else running, which I, which I understand because a lot of Israelis really only know, they don't, they don't know the, uh, the wide range of candidates that are out there. Maybe they'll know Clinton as right. well, but the other names are not household names. But it's really telling in the fact that you have a person with extraordinarily thin resume politically I guess, as foreign policy, where, where would the Israeli establishment be if Donald Trump were to, in fact, become the Republican nominee? Would there be panic with a guy who is totally unknown, totally untested with regard to anything having to do with foreign policy? I don't think panic is the right word. I think there would be um, uh, a, a movement to very quickly find out what his real uh, thinking about Israel is. One has to remember that he does have a converted Jewish daughter, so that helps on that score. He has never really said anything that's been anti-Israel, um, so in a sense there's nothing to fear at this stage. Um, uh, now, there's one other point that should be made. In America, a Donald Trump, or at least somebody who has no political experience, uh, is, is very, very unusual, as you said. That is not the case in Israel. Uh, the, clear, the best example is what happened in 2013, when you had somebody with absolutely no political experience, although he was a media commentator uh, on political matters, but still he was a media personality. Um, Yair Lapid set up a new party and won one-sixth sure. of the votes in the Knesset. Right? And it's not the only... Uh, example here of somebody coming basically out of nowhere, or at least not out from the political establishment, and making a mark. So for these, from the Israeli perspective, at least that aspect of Donald Trump's candidacy is not that unusual. What is very unusual is that the, thing, the kind of things that Trump is saying, the way he's saying it, uh, even in Israel, where it's almost a no-holds-barred kind of political campaigning, um, he would be over the top from that perspective. And one thing you mentioned before, and I certainly want, is the Bernie Sanders kibbutz uh, issue. We, our previous guest mentioned, actually, uh, Seth Lipsky wrote an article about Bernie Sanders and his kibbutz, and he highlighted the fact that it wasn't just the kibbutz that Bernie Sanders was on. It was a kibbutz that used to fly the hammer and the sickle, the communist flag, that they were Stalin uh, they were Stalinists. Right. Uh, it's very interesting that that would have been the kibbutz. Now, of course, you know, he's a socialist, a democratic socialist, certainly shies away from the word communist. But in fact, you know, when you think about it, there were Israeli kibbutzim that had actually admired communism and the, and the Soviet Union. Is that, does that teach us anything about Bernie Sanders? I'm not sure. I, I, uh, let's put it this way. It may be that there was some kind of a program back in the 60s when he came over here, and that was the kibbutz he ended up with without really understanding what the ideology was, or it could be the opposite. They knew very well where, where he was going, and that's what he wanted to do. Having said that, uh, one has to say two other things. One is that the word communism in Israel is not the really, really, really bad word that it is in the United States. Obviously, the vast majority of Israelis are not communists, but we do have a communist party in, in the Knesset. We've had it since the establishment of the state, and we haven't exactly gone crazy about it. It's, it's the only basically Jewish Arab party. Right, it's part of the Arab list, though. 
Right. Well, today is part of the Arab list only because they all decided they had to merge. Otherwise, they may all disappear because of the raising of the voting threshold. All right. But uh, until this past election, they've run and it's it, with different names. But then again, every party in Israel changes names. It used to be Rakach, the Communist Party, um, the Jewish Arab Front. Um, and um, so that the word communism is not really that kind of a dirty four-letter word in Israel as it, as it is back then. The second thing I would point out, and I'm not necessarily a Bernie Sanders supporter, just don't get me wrong here, but people do change from when they are young adults to having gone through life and in the, into their 70s. So I don't think you can certainly, I don't think you can say that because he went to a communist kibbutz for a couple of months for some kind of life experience that he's a communist today. Otherwise, you say he's certainly the most far left candidate in this presidential election. Yes, I would say that. So, Professor, from your academic perspective, uh, one one thing, commentary, and I think we actually learned this from last cycle, but certainly from this cycle, presidential campaigns in the United States go on way too long. You know, in Israel, you call an election, three months later, you have the election. It's, it's as you said, no holds barred, but it happens, it's aggressive, it's exciting, and it's done. Uh, right. Here, we go on for years of this. Uh, we, from a perspective of the electorate, I mean, how does that affect the electorate to, to have such a long campaign? Well, the, uh, I come from a political science background as well, and we do know that the majority of Americans are not focused insofar as who they're going to vote for or what exactly the program or the policies of the candidates are until very close to the elections themselves. You and I, and probably almost all of your listeners, are highly political animals. And therefore, we are really interested in politics from the word go, and no matter when it is, we want to know what's going on. The vast majority of Americans, uh, to a lesser extent, of course, Israelis, because we have existential issues here, which Americans, thank God, don't have. Um, but the vast majority of Americans are not really focused on, on the primaries. They will be focused on the primaries, let's say, two or three weeks before the primary comes to their state. Uh, so from that standpoint, um, the length of the election, I think, affects much more the candidates than it does the, um, uh, than it does the, the electorate itself. Uh, I would say that the, I agree with you completely that it's almost absurd, certainly by world standards. There's no other country that is a democratic country that is, has this kind of a very long presidential election campaign. Uh, having said that, and it's far too much money wasted, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, there is one advantage. And we can see it in several elections, not all of them, where a candidate who is relatively unknown decides to run, and the year, year and a half when he's out there and really having to answer both the media and other, other opponents, uh, enables him or her to show who they are, what they stand for, what they can do, um, how intelligent, how reactive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Obama, of course, I think is the classic case recently, but there have been others in the past. So that's, a, a that's an advantage of the very long presidential campaign. Having said that, it really should be condensed into maybe four, five, six months and not longer than that. Okay, Professor uh, Professor Sam Lieben-Wilzig of Bar-Ilan University, it's all we have time for right now. Very fascinating discussion, and certainly there's no question that there's huge differences between American politics, Israeli politics, and hopefully in the future we will get and delve a little bit deeper when we have you on uh, as uh, things progress. Great. Okay. Thank you. Bye -bye from this Israel.
<laughs> and it's good to hear you from Israel. And this is Spin Class wrapping up another Thursday morning of political talk here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, sponsored by the S4 Group, S4GRP.com. Head down to the website and you can subscribe to the weekly email. See you next week. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs here on the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs>